0: Sin is universal. I've only known one person besides the Lord Jesus Christ who claimed to be free from sin. That is, uh, we're free from sin as Christians under the blood of Christ as we walk in the life, First John 1, 7. But was sinless. Teaching a Bible class one time, ladies' Bible class. And I don't know how we got on the subject, but this sister who's very faithful said she did not sin. I could tell I was teaching the class and some of the sisters kind of grinned. And as tactful as I could, we worked around to the point that we all sinned, including uh, this lady. Uh, Very faithful, good-natured, maybe didn't make a pluses all the way through school, But somehow she didn't think that she, well, she was thinking about committing murder or killing, uh, stealing, committing adultery. She didn't do any of those things. And maybe she thought that was sort of the, what we had in mind when we talked about sinning. But we turn to Romans 3 and verse 10 and verse 23 where Paul said there is none righteous, no, not one. And 13 verses later, "For we all have sinned and fall short. Of the glory of God. Every individual reaches the age of accountability has fallen short of the approval of God because we all sin. Well, there are sins of commission, there are sins of omission. And so we were explaining now if I committed murder, I've committed a sin. That's a sin of commission. If I told a lie and God says don't do that, then I've committed another sin. That's a sin of commission. But there are sins of omission. In James 4 and verse 17, To him therefore that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. There are a number of things that the Lord wants us all to do as his people. There are many opportunities that present themselves. How many times a day do we commit sins of omission? I don't know. But we do. We're sinners. I remember seeing Alice in Wonderland on television. Not the, the story, it was a commercial. And I can't remember what she's trying to sell. But she made the statement in that commercial, Since when is it a sin not to do something? Well, I said, I'll tell you when. And quoted, well, she couldn't hear me, but I was thinking to myself, James 4, 17. We just quoted. To him, therefore, that knoweth to do good, leave something undone, and doeth it not, as to leave it undone, to him it's sin. I don't know what she was talking about, but anyway, she didn't have a right when it came to sin. Sin is universal. I suppose there might be some folks who'd say, well, I'm not all that bad. I... uh, The few sins that I commit, in fact, they may not like to even use the word sin. The few weaknesses that I have, surely God will overlook them. But we come back to the Bible. We come back to our own experiences. We know that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's difficult to have to say, I have sinned. I mean, it's easy for me to say, you sinned. Or he's sinned, or she's sinned. They've sinned. But when it comes to my own personal life and responsibility, I have, as an individual, broken God's law. I've acted contrary to his will. I've left this undone. I have sinned. But we have to say that if we want forgiveness. The wise man said in Proverbs 28 and verse 13. He that covereth or conceals or hides his transgressions shall not prosper. But he that confesseth, and that's not all. But he that confesseth and forsaketh them shall obtain mercy. So it's not just enough for me to say, I have sinned. And then go on into sin. To receive and obtain mercy and forgiveness from God... Not only must I confess I've sinned, I must forsake the sin. And that involves, of course, repentance, does it not? There are several examples in the Bible where people have made the confession, I have sinned. I'd like to look at some of those and we'll find that they were not all genuine confessions. There was not always repentance that went along with the confession. They didn't always for sake. Sometimes they concealed the transgression until they made it known, I have sinned. Well, let's start with uh, Pharaoh. You remember, Jacob came down with his family. His family grew into a nation in Egypt. And Pharaoh, because of the great number, made them all slaves. He was afraid if some enemy were to come to attack the Egyptians, they might ally themselves with these slaves and the Egyptians would be driven out or destroyed. Well, finally, God raised up Moses. And he sends Moses, I'm trying to cut down the story. He sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, let God's people go. Well, who is this Jehovah that I should hearken unto his voice, was the reply of Pharaoh. Well, it took a few plagues for Pharaoh to sort of wake up to who Jehovah was. And so they had the plague of turning the water into wine. uh, (laughs) <laughs> that a miracle, turning the uh, the water into blood, the miracle, the uh, the plague of the frogs and of the lice and of the of the uh, flies, the murrain of the cattle, of disease, boils, and the hailstones. Now there were ten altogether, but it, it took seven before Pharaoh stood up and said, "I have sinned. God is righteous." But I and my people are wicked. He confessed, I have sinned. And so he pleaded with Moses to remove this plague like he had removed the other six. You know, he said, I'll, I'll let you go. But as soon as the plague was gone, he changed his mind. His heart was hardened. But on this occasion, he said, I have sinned. So Moses asked God to remove the plague, and he did. But Pharaoh still had a hard heart. He still would not let the people go. Here's an example of a man saying, I have sinned, and then just kept on doing what he was doing before. He was facing a great calamity. And these plagues, every single one of them were great calamities. And he was trying to get some relief for himself and for his people. But he was deceitful. I have sinned. Sometimes people make such a confession at the time of calamity. I wonder how many people on their deathbed have turned to God and said, God, I have sinned. Please make me well. Please save my life. There was a preacher who did a lot of that kind of visiting, and he kept a record of the number of people that he went to see who confessed to him that they had sinned to to God, and he wrote it down. And after years of ministering to people like that, he, he drew a record, and there were hundreds of those who confessed on their deathbed that they had sinned, and when they got well, they returned to their sin. Just like Pharaoh was not sincere. We've heard about soldiers uh, being in a a foxhole, for example, and bombs exploding everywhere, and and they're pleading with God to forgive them of their sins and making a promise that if you'll just spare my life and let me go home safely, I'll live a different life. I remember a coach that came where I was a boy. uh, He said that he had made that kind of a vow to God, and he was trying to keep it. But there are others he knew about who were not, and I'm certain there must have been others, like Pharaoh, who didn't keep their vow. Or here's a parent who has a child who's deathly ill. And the parents turn to God for help. Please spare our child's life. I know I've been a sinner, and I'll do better if you'll just save his life. Well, we don't know a record, God knows how many were sincere in making that kind of a confession, and who were not. I know a woman, Vernon and I, who was a member of the church, one place where we were working. One Sunday morning she came forward during the invitation song. She was not a faithful member of the church. Yeah, I don't know how long it had been since uh, she'd been there. But she asked for the prayers of the church, asked that she might be forgiven for being unfaithful. And she made it known that she was going into the hospital that week to have an operation. She was afraid she had cancer. Well, fortunately for her, it wasn't cancer. But did she come back? Not while we were there. It makes you wonder about that kind of a confession. We can say, I have sinned. And then just go on in the sin, like Pharaoh. They had to bring another plague and another plague and another plague until he finally let them go. Then there's another example in the Bible of one who said, "I have sinned." That's Balaam. About we'll say thirty nine years later, the children of Israel are making a circle, a circuit around the children of Israel of uh, Edom, coming up the east side. They've attacked the Amorites like Sigon and Og and destroyed them now Balak is the king of Moab and he knows what they have done and he knows that there is a prophet of God not a Jew but a Gentile prophet of God named Balaam and so he sends for him he sends some of his officers and they say that King Balak would like for you to come and curse the children of Israel they're about to pass through his land, and he's afraid they'll destroy them. And we know that you bless people and you curse people. We want you to come and curse them. And you know what Balaam says? He says, well, I'll have to ask God if you'll let me go to curse these people. So you just wait. Well, God appears to him, and God says, don't go. Plain as it could be. And so Balaam tells the people, I can't go. He won't let me go. So they go back home. They tell King Balak, Balak's not going to accept that so he sends more higher more influential and powerful officers with more reward promises knock on the door and Balaam said are you back again he said yes we're here Balak says we want you to come and curse these people well instead of saying well God's already given me the message I can't come he said well I'll see what God has to say like maybe God his mind but God says this time all right you go he gets on his donkey, he goes away, and there is the angel of the Lord. They ask and see. And he has a sword, and it's drawn. He's standing right there before the donkey that Balaam's riding on. And the ass just turns out into the field. And what does Balaam do? He smites the, the animal, gets him back on the right road. He goes a little ways, and he comes between two walls. There's a vineyard, and he goes against the wall and crushes Balaam's foot. And again, he takes his rod and staff, and he smites the animal. He gets him going along. Well, the reason why he did that was the angel was spearing before him. Had this drawn sword that Badem didn't see, but the donkey did. And so they're going along, and they come to a very confined path. And there's the angel standing right before them. Nothing for the the, the donkey to do, but just sit down. And again, the third time, Badem smites his animal. And the the, the donkey says, why did you do that to me? And Balaam talked right back to him, well, because you did this and you did that to me. And they talked back and forth. And then we read where God opened the eyes of Balaam. So that he could see the angel of the Lord and his sword drawn right there in front of him. And God said, or the angel said unto Balaam. The reason the donkey did as he did was because I had this drawn sword and I would have slain you had he not turned aside. And that's when Balaam said, I have sinned. If you don't want me to go, I'll go back. Here's a lesson I think we learned from Balaam and God's relationship to him. God will allow an individual who persists who is determined to do what he wants to do, to do it. God had already told him, I don't want you to go. But he persists, so he says, all right, you go. And so Balaam goes. Remember, he's made a confession. But he keeps on going. I have sinned, and I'm going to go down to see Balak. And he keeps going. Well, make the story real short, if I can. Balak says, I want you to curse these people. Three different times, he has seven altars, three different places, seven oxen, seven rams that are offered as sacrifices. Each time, Batum comes back, he's gone over a little distance, comes back to the altar where Balak is standing, and he starts speaking, but what comes out, not a curse, but a blessing. And Balak is so upset. He said, I do not call you to curse them. I want them, I mean, to bless them. I want them cursed. He said, we'll try it again. So they do that that three times. Finally, Balak is told by, I mean, Balak tells Balaam, you just will go on home. I want a curse and you're not giving it to me. Balaam said, I could only, I told you this, I could only say what God puts into my mouth. God would not put a curse in his mouth. So he goes home. But somehow, Balaam comes back. And he tells, and the the Midianites and the Moabites are working together here. They're all against Israel. He cannot pronounce a curse against Israel, but he tells the people what to do to bring a curse upon the Israelites. He says, get your women to entice the Israelite men to come and to worship Baal Peor and to commit fornication." And then God will curse them. And they did. This is the man who said, I have sinned. And he's referred to in the New Testament as Balaam, love the hire of wrongdoing. That's in Second Peter 4, or 2, in verse 15. Or again, it's uh, referring to the sin in the error of Balaam for hire. Balaam was interested in that, those rewards. And though God would not put a curse in his mouth, he told them how they could be cursed. And so God told Moses to make war against the Midianites and the Moabites. And when he did, Balaam was there. And Balaam lost his life. He died. There were thousands who died because of this episode. Thousands. 24,000 Israelites because of their inducement into Baal Peor. And how many of the Midianites we don't know Of the Moabites But here's a man who said I have sinned And then he just goes on Sort of like Pharaoh Just went on Well what about you And me Have there been times when we recognize There was something wrong in our lives And we even confess to the Lord Lord I know it's wrong But we keep on doing it are we any different from Pharaoh or from Balaam? Lord, I know it's wrong to smoke. There's a confession. But we keep on smoking. I know it's wrong not to, to worship Sunday morning and Sunday night. But I only come once a week now. I know it's wrong. Well, you know what I mean. We know it's wrong. But we keep on doing it. Balaam knew it was wrong and he kept on doing it. I have sinned without the repentance doesn't do a bit of good. Then there's Achan. Another, about a year later, children of Israel have crossed the Jordan River. They've come to Jericho. They've circled it 13 times for seven days. And God causes the walls to fall down. They're given the city. He said, now, when you go in, you cannot have any of the spoil. That's all Dedicated to me—that's Jehovah talking. Not a thing. Generally, in wars or battles, they can take the spoil home, but not this time. God gives them the battle at Jericho, and then there's another city called Ai, spelled, pronounced the same way. Not very big. The spies come back and say, "We can take that with two or three thousand soldiers. That's all it takes." And so Joshua sends three thousand. But what happens? They turn their backs. And they flee and they lose the battle. Thirty-six men are killed. Joshua and the elders fall down before God put sand on their hair and said, What's happened, Lord? Why did you let us come into this land on the, the west side of the Jordan if we're going to lose the battle? God says there's sin in the camp. That was the trouble. There's sin here. I want you to let each tribe, each household, each family, each man pass by, representatively, of course, And he did that. The tribe of Judah came by. God said, that's the tribe. Then here's this household. Here's this family. And here's this man. And his name is Achan. That's where the sin is. The finger was pointing by God right on Achan. There wasn't anything Achan to do about it. But say, I have sinned. Kind of like catching a child with his hand in the cookie jar. I mean, what can you say? God... Showed everybody that Achan was sin. So Achan said, when I saw this goodly Babylonian mantle, I saw the silver and the gold. I saw it. I coveted, it. I took it and I hid it. And you'll find it in my tent. I dug, it, I dug a hole and put it down there. I have sinned. One thing about Achan, he wasn't the only one that suffered. The whole nation suffered. 36 men, their families, husbands, uh, brothers, and so forth were slain. And sometimes that's what happens when we commit sin. You know, we'll say, well, it's none of your business. If I want to sin, it's my business. That's not so. It's everybody's business in the Lord's family. I remember a congregation having parking problem. That's always a good kind of a problem to have. You've got so many cars, not enough place to put them all. And a family came to worship. They were a little late. They could not find a parking place. So they just drove up in the driveway. a driveway that belonged to somebody who was not a member of the church. And those people couldn't get out till worship was all over. Bible study was all over. They condemned the whole church for what that one family had done. That's kind of like Achan's sin. Everybody suffers with it. There was another man, I, we knew this man, <clears throat> uh, he liked to play baseball in the summertime, they would have their you know, unprofessional games, men would come together and they'd play, he's a farmer. He liked to play but he had, a, he had a, a hot temper. And when a referee would call the wrong thing or a player would do something else he didn't like, he would get angry. I mean it was, you know, win or, or, or what. <laughs> and he would even get into a fight. He's a member of the Church of Christ, folks. Now, are all the members of the Church of Christ like this man? Well, they don't know. They're just going to judge everybody in the Lord's family like this individual Christian has acted wrongly. Achan confessed, I have sinned. And his sin brought shame upon everybody, death, even to his own family, because they must have been a part of it. Well, let's move on. <clears throat> About 400, we'll say 410 years later, hold me a year or two here or there, King Saul, he's the king. And God, through his prophet Nathan, uh, Samuel, says, Saul, I want you to take your men. And he took 210,000 men. It was a big job. And go down and destroy all of the Amalekites. Because when you came out of Egypt, you know, before they got to Mount Sinai, and they came up from behind you and they they attacked the older folks, uh, those who were weary, came up from behind and attacked them. And he said, when that happened, I don't want you to forget it. Joshua was the leader. God gave them the victory. But he said, don't forget what Amalek did. So Saul, 400 years later... Has to go and uh, get God's revenge upon these people. So he goes down. He says, destroy everything and all that they have. All the people, all their possessions. Saul's coming back. And the night before, God appears to Samuel. And he tells him what Saul did and what he did not do. And so early the next morning, Samuel got up and he met Saul And Saul said, Blessed be Jehovah God, I have carried out his commandment. Samuel said, If you carried out his commandment, I'm paraphrasing it, what meaneth the bleeding of the sheep and the the lowing of the oxen which I hear in my ear? You were supposed to slay all of those animals, and I can hear that you didn't slay them all. So you did not carry out God's commandment. And by the way, who's this man here? Well, that's the king. That's King Agag. You're supposed to slay everybody. You didn't slay him. But Saul said the people wanted to spare the best of the animals and to bring them and offer them as an animal sacrifice to God. Now, doesn't the end justify the means? The means justify the end or whatever. Samuel said no. To hearken and to obey God is better than sacrifice. It's better than the fat of rams. God wants you to do his will and you cannot substitute some sacrifice. I mean, let me say, I committed a big sin this week. Well, I'm going to put in $100 this week to kind of cover it. And that's not the way it gets covered. God does not respect the sacrifice in that kind. He wants to hearken to him. He wants us to obey him. That Saul didn't. And finally, Saul said, I have sinned. But when he made his confession, he pointed his fingers at other people. It was their fault. Had they not wanted to spare these best animals, I'd have had them all slain. It's their fault. So here's a confession. But we're blaming somebody else. Now, <clears throat> what caused your problem? Maybe it was your parents. Maybe you were abused when you were a child. Maybe it's your religion. Maybe it's society. And whatever it is, blame them, but don't take the blame yourself. Now maybe I'm simplifying it. Hmm. Blame somebody else. That's what Saul wanted to do. And an individual may have had some bad parents, may have been living in a bad place, but he is going to be responsible before God for what he does, or for what he fails to do. Romans fourteen and twelve says so. Then each one of us shall give an account of himself unto God. I can't say, "Well, God, uh, did you notice where I was living? Did you notice how my family treated? Did you notice?" Saul said, "I've sinned." He wanted to uh, conform to the majority. It was Moses who said in Exodus twenty three and two. <clears throat> And how can I get that started? Do not uh, commit sin. uh, Do not follow after a multitude to commit sin. That's it. I mean, everybody may be doing it. And young people use that expression. Well, why can't I go to the dance? Everybody's going. But, of course, everybody's not going. That's just a good expression. Even if a majority and 99% of them went, that's no excuse for going. I fear the people. I want popularity. I want to do what they want me to do. And that is not the right idea. The right attitude. Well, we better move on. How about King David? Now, David was a sinner. He was a man after God's own heart, but he did commit sin. He had his men at war. He stayed home. He saw Bathsheba. He sought her, brought her home. Never met her before. And they commit adultery. He's a sinner. And when he gets word that Bathsheba's expecting his child, then he gets a, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Bathsheba and Uriah, that's right. Uriah to come back. He wants to send, David wants to send Uriah home. So that when Bathsheba has a baby, everybody will point the finger at Uriah, the husband, rather than a David. But it didn't work out, does it? Finally, because Uriah will not go home, he sent back with the message to Joab to have him put in the hottest battle and withdrawn from so he'll die. Well, that was another sin that David committed. So God sins after time goes along. David has concealed his sin pretty well. There weren't any witnesses, evidently, being the king. He could make certain nobody was around. So nobody could come and say, uh, I'm a witness, and David's guilty. So he had concealed it pretty well. But God knew about it. And he was not pleased with what David had done. And so he sent Nathan around to David, and he told him this story about, there were two men in the town. One was very rich, and the other was poor. The rich man had a multitude of herds and a multitude of uh, flocks. Not just sheep and oxen, but flocks and herds. And a stranger comes along and so the rich man, instead of getting one of his multitude of animals to offer as a, as a dinner, he goes next door and he takes this one ewe lamb that the poor man possessed. It was like a daughter to him. Drank out of his own cup, ate his own food. And he takes him and offers him to the stranger. That's the dinner. And when David hears this story from Nathan, and of course David was a king, he was a judge. Prophets brought, you know, different judgment. He, he thought that really happened. He said, that man is worthy of death. And he needs to pay fourfold for that lamb that he took. And that's when Nathan said, Thou art the man. Nathan rehearsed the various blessings that God had brought in in David's life and David said I have sinned he had to suffer a number of consequences for his sin a sword would never leave his household the child would die the enemy would be given occasion to blaspheme God's name and things like that He sinned. There's one thing about David, though. When he had to face it, he repented. He made the change God wanted in his heart. He wrote Psalm 51. This is attributed to David at this very time when he said, I have sinned, when Nathan came to him. Let me read a few of his statements. See if this doesn't sound like a person who's repented... Having confessed his sin. I have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done that which is evil in thy sight. Let me skip down. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore me unto the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. For thou delightest not in sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou hast no pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. David made a confession and he repented. Hurriedly. <clears throat> well, all right, I'll mention Judas. Judas is carried. In Matthew 27, he brought the 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priests and the elders in the sanctuary. There is the temple. He said, I have sinned in that I betrayed innocent blood. And they said, What's that to us? See ye to it. And then he just threw the 30 pieces of silver down there in the sanctuary and he went out and hanged himself. Now he said, I have sinned. Matthew says, it repented Judas, or, or Judas repented. But it wasn't the kind of repentance that God wants. Second Corinthians 7 and 10 says, for godly sorrow worketh repentance under salvation. A, salva- a salvation that bringeth no regrets. But a sorrow of this world worketh death. And that was the kind of sorrow that Judas Iscariot had. He didn't have a repentance that, caused, that was caused by godly sorrow. He had worldly sorrow that brought self-reproach. That brought about... We uh, <clears throat> mentioned worldly sorrow... Remorse, shame, but not genuine repentance. And so he committed suicide, even though he confessed, I have sinned. One other is a prodigal son. Here's an example of true repentance. Came to his father one day, demanded his share of the inheritance. Went out and wasted it all. Lost it all. That's what prodigal means, waste. Then there was a great famine, didn't have any money, didn't have a job, went out to work in a man's field feeding swine. And when he came to himself, and it took all of that to get him to come to himself, he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against thee and against heaven. I'm not worthy to be called one of thy sons, make me as one of thy hired servants. And he did it. He... Knew what he needed to do. He planned He knew what he was going to say. And then he up and went back home. And when his father saw him. Ran to him. Embraced him. He confessed to him. I have sinned. David. And the prodigal son. Of the seven we've looked at. Are the only ones worthy of our imitation. Because when they confess their sins. They also repented. They made things right. And God accepted them. So the other five didn't quite go far enough. Sin is universal. And when it comes into our lives as God's children, then we must confess them and forsake them. I don't think I quoted First John 1, 8 through 10, and I'm not going to take time because I've gone way over, but you might want to read it. John said the same thing. Paul said, we do sin. But when we sin, verse 9, if I confess, he will forgive me of my sins, cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So we have God's promise. If we're not a child of God to, to get that forgiveness of sins, we must obey the gospel. We must get into Christ where forgiveness is provided. And that comes through confessing our faith, repenting of our sins, being buried with Him in baptism for the remission of our sins. If you're subject to the gospel, won't you come to a loving, merciful, compassionate God who tells us He wants us to come to Him, who gave His Son, who said, if I be lifted up, All men are going to be lifted up. So that's the way he appeals to us to come to him. If you're subject to his invitation, won't you come as together we stand and sing?